Blog Talk Radio. Another day, another chance. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to Riding the Wave. I'm Mark Healy, the editor-in-chief of the Wave newspaper here in Rockaway, Rockaway's newspaper since 1893. We continue our series of talking with the candidates for Queens District Attorney, and today joining us is Amina Malik. Amina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Now, you know, a lot of the candidates that have come in have faced this uh, tough question that I keep asking, that um, a lot of folks that read the paper, that have read some of the stuff that we've done on the Queen's DA race. Um, you know, a lot of talk has been about the, you know, criminal re- reform, you know, criminal justice reform. A lot of the talk has been about uh, how to close Rikers Island and how to fix a broken, quote unquote, a broken system. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't think that, that, that the system is... The, certainly a lot of elements of the system that need that are broken that need to be fixed but I do think that there are people who are uh, a little nervous about the idea that um, not a lot of the talk has been about enforcing the existing laws or enforcing the law and making sure that we're going to protect law-abiding citizens what do you say to that I think it's very important to note Mark that what makes me separates me from the rest of the candidates is that I've actually implemented criminal justice reform without compromising the safety of our citizens and the public. I worked with Ken Thompson, the Brooklyn District Attorney. I was his special counsel and implemented criminal justice reform with him there when he took over in 2014 and created the Conviction Review Unit, which is now a gold standard and a national model for the country. And to date, we have exonerated and freed 25 wrongfully convicted people. I've also worked with Attorney General Carl Carl Racine and implemented criminal justice reform there, again, without compromising public safety. Anti-truancy initiatives to keep our children in school so that they get an education, and we break the school-to-prison pipeline. Hope Court, which concentrated on human trafficking victims, some as young as 11 years old. Mental Health Community Court, which concentrated on getting treatment for people with mental health issues. And so there are a number of initiatives. Restorative Justice is another one that I implemented and helped build and expand to the 18 to 24-year-old age group as Deputy Attorney General. So we can implement criminal justice reform without compromising public safety. But I have spent my entire career keeping the public safe. 
and prosecuting those violent cases and violent offenders where it's warranted and where they need to be held accountable. I, I, I always look at you know, when you work in more than one area, right, as a, as a great way to kind of evaluate talent. You know, I like to think of myself as a pretty good talent evaluator. And one of the things I always look at is how many different things has this person done to gain experience from, you know, those different, you know, those different jobs, those different fields, and kind of bring it in, you know, to the position that you want. And you've worked kind of everywhere, you know, you've done pretty much everything. You've, you've prosecuted cases, because that's been a big criticism. You know, a lot of people have said, well, how can you run uh, the Queen's DA office having never prosecuted a case? You can check that off. How many people, you know, oh, he's gonna, they're, they're going to be too much of a law and order person like Richard Brown, uh, but you can check that box and say, no, actually, I've worked, you know, on the other side of the, on the, other side of the fence as well. Uh, will will they be partnered with uh, you know will they get co let cops get off if they're not doing the right thing? You've worked with the CCRB, so I think that when you look at that background, um, how important is it? How important was the decision to run for you? Did did that play a role in, in, in that you know in that experience level that you you've had? Did that play a role in your decision to actually make this run? Absolutely. This was not an easy decision to make, right? And I recognize that when you're running for the top law enforcement official in that position in a county of 2.4 million people, that is considered the most diverse county in the country, if not the world, it is a very, very serious job, one that I take to heart. What sets me apart is that I have been on both the defense side as well as the prosecution side. I started off my criminal justice career at the DC Public Defender Service. I came back and worked for the County of Queens for 15 years, where my specialty and my passion were child homicide cases, child physical sexual abuse, adult sex crimes, human trafficking cases, and crimes against the elderly. I've worked with Ken Thompson, like you said, I was the head of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, right, where I not only worked alongside police officers, but I also held them accountable when they did wrongdoing, right? And it's a very small percentage of police officers that commit wrongdoing, right? That I've also worked with the Attorney General. It is extremely important to have street credibility when you walk into the Queen's DA's office on day one. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have experience in criminal justice. You need to have experience in criminal justice reform. Everybody in this race right now is talking about criminal justice reform, but nobody has actually implemented it. I'm the only one who has implemented it. And I'll tell you something else, Mark. If the mayor appointed the police commissioner without experience, if the mayor appointed the fire commissioner without experience, that person would have no street credibility with the rank and file in those organizations and those agencies. So it's important for NYPD Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill to have been a patrol cop with the Transit Bureau and to have worked his way up through the ranks to become the police commissioner. It's important that Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro worked his way up in the rank and file and became the fire commissioner because you understand the job. You understand it at the ground level because you've done the work 
you fought the fires, you've been on patrol, and I've been a line prosecutor and worked my way up through the ranks. No, you're right. I mean, if you look, the boss is always going to be the boss. The suits are always going to be the suits. But, and so there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be discord. There's always going to be discord between the rank and file and, you know, whoever's, you know, calling the shots because it's just inevitable. It happens everywhere. Uh, but you're right. When somebody has done, you know, it, when you've walked a mile in their shoes, you can say, hey, you know, uh, hello, it's not my first rodeo. I've done this before. And I think that it not... It, doesn't just resonate, I think, with the rank and file. I think it also resonates with the voters. Let's be honest. This is an election. It's not, you know, it's not a popular IRA contest. Or at least we hope it's not. Um, here's a question that 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 I would like to raise because just from my own experiences in dealing with the Queen's DA, um, I think it's important, and probably more so now than ever that there is a, an understanding and a comprehension of what, what role the press plays in informing the public of what is happening in the court system. So if that means that we have somebody that gets arrested and arraigned and all these different things that happen, do you believe in that kind of accessibility and transparency and is that the way you would run your office or are you going to continue kind of how they you know, currently do it, and how some some of the people have not said publicly, but I I I know pretty pretty much. I mean, I know my way around. I've heard like they don't they almost don't want to be transparent because of this all these other considerations. How will, will your office be transparent and accessible? I think it's extremely important for a government agency to have transparency, accessibility, accountability, diversity, and inclusion. And one of the things that I did as the head of the largest police oversight agency in the country is that I made sure that we implemented a data transparency initiative, which is still on the website today, and talks about the data that the agency collects and evaluates the data. It's very important to collect data, but also to evaluate it, Mark, so that we can figure out what we're doing efficiently and what we're doing effectively and how we can improve on, what, on the work that we're doing. One of the things you, you talk about, um, and, and you have talked about, is restorative justice. It, it's certainly something that has been talked about uh, here a lot in Rockaway by groups like the Rockaway Youth Task Force. Uh, we've done front pages on restorative justice and, and what it means, because so many people just think it means, you know, or you, you slap people on the wrist and you let them get away with it. I mean, that, that's kind of what happens. Uh, can you explain what you believe restorative justice to be and do you support, uh, you know, implementing it? I wholeheartedly support implementing it and I'll tell you why. It's the experience that I've already had with restorative justice, not only in implementing it with juveniles, but also expanding it to 18 to 24 year olds um, as Deputy Attorney General. And what it is, Mark, it's a way of bringing the offender and the victim together to discuss the harm that was caused, how it had affected both parties, and how to make sure that the harm doesn't happen again. Because at the end of the day, victims want to be heard, right? Some of them don't want to just see someone go to jail or someone go to prison. They want to be heard. They want to talk about how this crime affected them. 
And sometimes the offenders gain that education as to how they affected somebody else's life. So I've seen it work. I've seen it work with a police officer and a young man where there was a foot chase. The police officer chased after the young man. The, he tackled him and the police officer fell. His eye almost got gouged out because there was a bike that was parked there. And both of them agreed to do restorative justice. It sounds hokey at first, but it really works. We brought the police officer and the young man together, and they talked about the incident. And they talked about it very freely, very openly, and very honestly. And at the end of the day, the police officer realized that this young man didn't intend to harm him, right? But he realized that this young man didn't have a father figure in his life, that this young man was about to become a father himself, and eventually, the young man apologized for what happened and realized the gravity of the situation and the police officer said, you know what, I'm going to be your father figure because you're about to bring a baby into this world and we don't want this cycle to repeat itself. And to this day they keep in touch with each other and it's a very positive relationship. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate now because that's what I do. I'm a contrarian. <laughs> Now that sounds great. It really does. It's like an after-school special, if you're old enough to remember what an after-school special was. I, I am certainly old enough. Um, it is. It's great. But how about, you know, I, I, I could just imagine myself as a parent, you know, I hear that and I'm like, well, that's all well and good, but what if my kid's being bullied constantly by the same person and restorative justice doesn't work? Uh, what about... Um, the fact that you know they want us, they want uh, they uh, people want the city to cut down on suspensions, you know because. But what if a kid is actually violent? I mean, I mean, there's a there's a there's a there's a fine line between again changing a broken system of just suspending kids in the prison to pipeline, you know the the school uh, you know the school uh, pipeline you know pipeline to prison. Uh, all those things, I get it. But then there's also, like, as someone like myself, I was bullied, okay, mercilessly from, you know, second grade to, like, my sophomore year of high school. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of restorative justice going on. So I could see where that would be helpful, especially to kids who are getting bullied. But what I'm not sure about, when a lot of people are out there, is that it doesn't the safety of, of the of the victim become more important than the situation of the perpetrator? So how do we figure out which which cases deserve restorative justice and which ones deserve, sadly, uh, that person being arrested for assault? So you have to remember that in the restorative initiative, restor restorative justice initiative that we started there were certain parameters and we had a policy in place as to the types of cases that we would send to restorative justice. So we didn't send sex offense cases. We didn't send cases with serious physical injury. We sent cases where both the victim and the offender agreed to participate in restorative justice. And where it did not work out in the end, ultimately we had to make a decision as to whether we were going to go forward with a prosecution or not. So it's it's a, a model and an initiative where the victim does have a say in what happens, as well as the offender. Sometimes there's this intergenerational 
fighting that goes on, right? That has been there, you know, for two, three generations, and nobody even knows why anymore. Right. There's just, you know, this bullying, and you know, this family doesn't like, you know, that family. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Right. right. So we're trying to fix that, and we're trying to get at the root cause, and trying to make sure that people are whole again and the harm is repaired. But ultimately, it is absolutely about the safety of the of the victim and making sure that the victim gets justice, but also that the offender gets justice. And we're trying to fix the situation between them so we don't have a repeat in the future. Another big complaint that we get a lot uh, is about it seems, and you know, and again, I don't have the numbers to back this up because I don't even think the numbers are being counted or. It's hard to trust numbers today because of the way that they're collected and presented to the general public. A lot of people have complained that the quality of life issues that were rampant under Koch and all the pre you know, and all the mayors prior to him, uh, you know, have gotten their their back. You know, uh, that you know, there's more homeless in Penn Station. There's more, you know, there's more people doing things you know, graffiti, all these different quality of life issues that broken windows, the broken windows policy seemed to have fixed. And now that broken windows is, you know, been done away with, people are saying, well, they want broken windows back because they don't like what they're seeing on the street, in public places, in midtown Manhattan. You know, uh, on the subway. The subway is a big problem. I see, I pic see pictures every day of cars that you you know can't be used because of you know uh, and it's sad but you know when you want to get to work in the morning you don't really have a lot of time for compassion and I hate to say it, it sounds terrible and heartless but that's how people are he's like I'm getting, I gotta get to work let's go let's you know do what we need to do so quality of life those kinds of things where do you stand on how the VA can assist the city in doing a better job of not maybe maybe it's not bringing back broken windows, but maybe it's something else. So I firmly believe in applying equal justice to everyone, right? And I know there's been a lot of talk of broken windows policing and things of that nature. It is very important to keep this city safe, right? There are other ways to deal with quality of life crimes, whether through civil summonses or criminal summonses, desk appearance tickets, things of that nature. We really need to focus on serious crimes in this city. Even though crime has gone down between 1990 and 2018 by 75%, there is still crime, particularly here in the Rockaways, that needs to be dealt with. The gun violence needs to be dealt with, right? Even in the 100th precinct, grand larcenies are up. Forged checks are up. Identity theft is up mailbox fishing where people try and fish out checks and then wash them and write in astronomical amounts, you know, and, and deplete someone's bank account. Things of that nature are up. Made the majority of felonious assaults are domestic violence related. In the 100th Precinct, we need to be looking at those cases and those crimes and offenses and figuring out how we can make sure that those continue to go down just like it has across the city. And, and you know, and and just to mention, the 101 has similar issues. Uh, they've had a little bit. They've had more gun violence issues. They've had more homicides. I, mean, I think they have double the homicides they had a year ago. 
and, and it's frustrating because a lot of it's gang nexus, but not every not every crime that happens in the precincts no, 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 no. is gang nexus. In, you know, it's not, and and so it's hard to it's hard for people that are experiencing that kind of of day to day to to get behind a candidate that they don't think is going to, you know, be the new sheriff in town and, and really kind of, you know, say, look, I'm voting for that person because I, I know they're going to keep us safe, like, as, you know, using your words. So, you know, just to, just to bring this all together, uh, if, if, if people want to learn more about you, they want to keep up with your campaign, they want to find out how to donate to your campaign, uh, where do they go? Nina, the number four, DA.com. So M is in Mary, I, N is in Nancy, A, the number four, dot com. And that's your uh, Twitter handle as well? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, look, I, I really enjoyed having you come down and be part of the program, and I really appreciate, uh, you know, you sharing your thoughts with us. And if there, is there anything that you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Mark, I think what's very important is that Queens deserves a district attorney who is not only going to apply equal justice across the board, but who is also going to keep the community safe. And I think Queens voters are intelligent enough, savvy enough, and sophisticated enough to know that the person, the next Queens DA, needs to have the background in criminal justice, needs to understand both the defense side and the prosecution side needs to make sure that equal justice is applied to defendants and people accused of crimes as well as victims and needs to be able to implement meaningful criminal justice reform without compromising public safety. And I'm the person who can do that. Well, that's pretty uh, That's pretty good. <laughs> Have you done this before? Uh, this, this has been our show uh, for today. Uh, thanks again to uh, Mina and her staff. Antonia for doing such a great job and putting this together and uh, we'll see you next week folks on Riding the Wave. Thank you Mark.